moving on from walking day by day, seeing how God made the heavens and the earth. Now proceeding a little bit faster pace, in part just to, it's the nature of the text itself, to be able to see how God tells the story, the history of humanity. And I am thankful for you guys. And I want to show you guys that I'm thankful for you. And I think the best way I can show you that I'm thankful for you is by being a pastor to you, Evergreen, which has been just such a joy in my life. This has been second biggest blessing in my life next to, well, I guess third, I'll say becoming a Christian, getting married to my wife, and being pastor of Evergreen Community Church in that order are the most important things to me. And I want to thank you guys by equipping you for every good work. I want to be with you in the midst of your suffering. I want you to be nourished with a regular diet of instruction from God's word. And most importantly, even with this task, text, we'll see how it builds us up in the knowledge and faith of Jesus Christ our Lord by reflecting on paradise itself. Let us read God's holy, inerrant word, starting in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third is the Tigris which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Maybe the first thing that I need to say is that Typically, when people are reading this text, the first thing that they come to is some sort of apologetics question. Trying to pit Genesis 1 against Genesis 2, saying that these are two contradicting 
creation stories. And maybe one guy wrote one in Genesis 1 to 2, 3, and someone else wrote the second one, and there are some glaring contradictions. Maybe the first way we can solve that error or fix that problem is just to realize how the book of Genesis is set up. It starts off with God creating the heavens and the earth. It starts off with telling the story of how God made absolutely everything. But he's not just doing that to fill our curiosities, just to inform us. God always has a particular purpose in what he tells us. He ended on the sixth day of creation by creating man in his image, showing how all of his creation pointed towards that and ended with the mirroring and resting of resting in God's rest. And when we get to Genesis 2, 4, we get the first structural detail in our text that we'll see 10 different times in the book of Genesis. Well, we won't see those 10 for a while, but we'll see a couple of them. And it's that one phrase, these are the generations. And it's kind of curious because when we come across that, I don't know about you, but when I read that text, when I see these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, first I think it's pointing me back to what I just read. And not only that, but I'm kind of confused because we, what does it mean to be a generation of the heavens and the earth? It's a colloquial phrase that we see throughout the book of Genesis. And it always starts with the first in line and then going through what came of that person. What came of God's creation? What followed? God created the heavens and the earth not only good at every point, but very good. But what happened after that? Well, through the course of history, we know by experience that at some point, sin, death, destruction, disease, and all that entered in. And with that phrase, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. This is what came after. This is what became of the heavens and the earth. The whole next story goes from Genesis 2, verse 4, all the way to the end of Genesis chapter 4. And what is in Genesis 3? It's the fall. It's the point in which sin not only did not disrupt the goodness of God's creation, but destroyed almost every semblance of that original goodness and infiltrated it in almost every part. So Genesis 2 really ends up being a story, yes, of paradise, but it's told within the framework of preparing us what was lost in the fall. Then in chapter 3, how the fall actually happened. And then in chapter 4, all the consequences that came from the fall. So while the title of this sermon is Paradise Founded, which is what we're reading about, it's told within the framework of what is lost. Even think about the setup. God's introducing you to 
what he's doing on day six of his creation. He made, we learned in Genesis 1.27, that he created human beings, both male and female, after his own image and likeness. But that just tells us that he did something. Here we're told how. And we're introduced to the how of verse 7 in verse 5. When we're told that no bush of the field was yet in the land. And I'm not sure why the, the ESV says no small plant of the field. Because really the only pitting here is, is the bush of the field. The plants of the field versus the plants of uh, the plants that are not in the field, basically in the wilderness, that had not sprung up. And we're given two reasons. One is because God had not caused it to rain. And second, because there was no man to work the ground. And curiously, we see this same phrase, these two objects of no bush in the field and no plant in the field, cultivated versus uncultivated plants, we see this distinction happen in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, verse rather 18. When as a result of the fall, Adam is cursed in particular. And what comes up? Verse 18 says, thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you. Plants, bushes in the field. And you shall eat plants of the field. And that correlates to the ESV's no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. You see, this text is not in verse 5, not in contradiction to what happened in Genesis 1 when God created vegetation on day 3 and then man afterwards on day 6. But rather what we see is what we're being set up with, that we're talking about the aftermath of creation before the fall happened. Before there are thorns and thistles. For one reason, because it hadn't rained yet. That seems obvious. And second, because man did not till the field. Once it rains on dry ground with seed in it, what happens? Stuff starts sprouting. And you're not going to get any plants of the field unless you have people to work a farm to produce the crops. Because Adam's food, we see when God sets him up in the garden, is not plants of the field, not that that's anything wrong with that, but God's food that he provides them is rather a bunch of trees. What's being set up here is before the fall, before the curse entered the world, God made Adam. And when we are talking about paradise founded, I'm going to keep it quite simple, especially since I didn't put the outline in your bulletin. We're going to look at how God blessed the man in a place, that he blessed a real man, and he really offers that blessing to us still in Christ. So let me repeat that. He's going to bless a real place. He's going to put a real man in that place. And we're going to see that the same blessings are going to be held out to us in Christ. So let's look at this. Let's, start, let's look at the blessings of the real 
place. Maybe the thing that strikes you most about verses 8 through 14 is that all these different name references and places that we don't really know about. Where is Eden? What river is the Pashan? And what's this land of Havilah with, filled with gold? Another river, Gihon and Cush. You might recognize the Tigris and the Euphrates if you're familiar with Middle Eastern geography. Seeing the Euphrates and Tigris run through Iraq and Iran down. But this is a bunch of unfamiliar places, to us at least. And actually the reality is, is that especially those first two rivers, the Pishon and the Gihon, are also familiar to us, unfamiliar to most people. But the point here, and we have to be really careful, is not to just allegorize this text and spiritualize a Eden, a place of paradise. For God made a real place. Eden is a place that's referenced in Isaiah chapter 26. It is referenced in... Uh, It's referenced in Ezekiel. Once again, word, when I put the order in here. And not only that, but when talking about the promised land to Abraham, it's hardly a coincidence that when Abraham's being promised a land, he's promised a land that coincides with these rivers, specifically the Euphrates, along with something called uh, the river of Egypt. Marking the boundaries of the promised land. What we see here is a promised land that is on top of a mountain. God plants a garden. And out of this garden flows a river that becomes four different rivers. So it means that this is on a higher elevation. And this land, is the focus of this land is not its position in the world, but the focus on the land is the blessings that fill it. Filled with jewels and precious metals. Filled with beautiful things. Filled with beautiful trees in specific, specifically. The land of Eden, Eden, as it's referenced in Old Testament, and seems it's familiar to Old Testament prophets and to Moses and to his readers. It says that Eden, we call, often call it the Garden of Eden, but really it's the Garden in Eden. Eden's a region, and God puts a particular garden on a mountain. And even the word there for garden, it makes sense in the terms of the fact that God's the one who plants it. God's the one who organizes it much like we do a botanical garden for beauty and design. But it's more of an orchard. Because what makes this garden a garden? What does God specifically plant in it? Well, he plants, specifically, he plants trees. And all the trees that God plants are good for food, and pleasing to the sight. You know, what we're going to see when we read of Eve 
and when Satan tells his lie to tempt her to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, which we're going to postpone that discussion until next time about what those trees are. But notice that when she is deceived in chapter 3, verse 6, what helps her, what deceives her, is she says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Well, what's the point here? Every tree in the garden was pleasing to the sight. Every tree of the garden was good for food. This is the effect that we all have when if you have, I don't know, a birthday cake for your child. And you lay out a host of desserts and you say, just, just wait to eat the birthday cake until after the birthday boy arrives. What's the one dessert that kid is going to want to eat? It's going to be the one thing you told him he can't have. But when he gets into that cake, and when he inevitably gets into trouble, is it the parent's fault? Was not God here providing for humanity, for Adam himself, more than he needed? He created this garden, this beautiful land, this botanical garden of sorts, to provide for every need that he had. Eden itself means pleasure. He's creating a garden for Adam's pleasure, for him to have dominion in, yes, to work, yes, but for him to enjoy. Whatever happens next, we can't blame God for it. We all know, and if we're really honest with ourselves, when we sin, can we really blame God? When we sin, do we not just do the thing that our heart wants to do? That's what sin is. And none of us, I'm not saying we're placed in a similar circumstance as Adam, because none of us have it as good as him. None of us have all of our needs provided for the way he did. In the sense of living in perfection, living in, this is the word, where the word paradise comes from. The Greek translation of Eden is paradise. Adam was not a victim of his circumstances. Adam was given all he needed. But even though we're not put in the same perfect situation as Adam was, doesn't God's providence still prevail? Doesn't God still provide for everything we need? Doesn't God's goodness still show throughout the earth? Rain falls on the just and the unjust providing for every need that we have. This is the blessing of this place. This is the blessing of the garden. And maybe just one more apologetic note here. Some criticize and say verse 6 talks about the mist that's going up from the land, watering the whole face of the ground. 
and are confused by this? Well, that word missed does only occur two times. But it occurs in another place that actually is very helpful. In Job chapter 36. Where it's very clear that this word for missed, I think actually refers to a cloud. Because what is mist? It's a collection of dew. It's a collection of rain droplets. And in Job chapter 36, verse 27, we see that that collection is a cloud from which showers the earth. That's why we have to be really careful. I've heard some people say, talk about how it has not rained or did not rain from Genesis, from the creation till the flood. And that was the first rain. We have to be really careful about reading into or putting words into the text that aren't there. Even if you didn't understand what that word missed meant in verse 6, the only thing we're told is that rain just hasn't happened yet. But he did cause the rain to fall. He did water his earth. And he did make man. In this garden, this blessing that is end up being lost by the fall is for a real person it's a real place for a real person look at verse 7 then the lord god formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living creature hear that word therefore formed is god doing the act of a potter Jeremiah chapter 18 uses the same word to talk about how God, that we are like a pot in God's hands, that he forms out of the clay our lives. Verse, uh, Isaiah 64, verse 8 says, But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are clay, and you are our potter. We are the, all the works of your hands. The man who is blessed to live in the garden is a man who's designed by God himself. We are told in Genesis 1 that God made him in his image, but now we see how. That humanity is being formed by God as if like a pot. And specifically, this is referring to his body, which is something that should be pretty humbling for us. Because what are we made out of? Abraham, in, Abraham, in uh, Genesis chapter 18, he's going to say, who are you, O God, when making an appeal to God? I'm just dust and ashes before you. I like that Matthew Henry points out that God didn't choose to make us out of gold dust, did he? He didn't make us out of the dust of some precious metal. He made us out of the ground, out of dirt. Adam's name, Adam, comes from the Hebrew word for dirt, Adamah. That's his name. And that becomes the name for humanity itself. And part of the curse as well is that from dust we were made to dust we shall return. Isn't that what ultimately happens? No matter how the body decays? 
we see it return to the earth? This should be humbling for us, shouldn't it? And yet there's a special significance in man that we see God as is picking him up. He makes his body, crafts it, and forms it beautifully, by the way, even though it's out of the dirt. Our design is amazing in the craftsmanship of our body. But God takes it as if it were our face and breathes into our nostrils, breathes into our nose. And what does he breathe? But the breath of life. There's a sense in which this is true of creatures in general. We see that the result of this is that they become a living creature. Human beings are also called living creatures, just like fish, birds, and animals. The point of difference is not that we are made up of body and soul as components. The difference in humanity is God's craftsmanship, his concern. As we're told in Genesis chapter 1, that we are made in the image of God. God has a special purpose for humanity, and he specially blesses them. Maybe one other point from Romans chapter 9 should inform us when we think about the language of a potter forming us. Romans chapter 9 points to the fact that when we think of ourselves in God's hand, that that doesn't just refer to our being created, our creation, but to every step of our lives along the way. That God is sovereign over us completely. And that his purposes in crafting and shaping us doesn't just apply to our bodies, but applies, applies to our very lives. Romans chapter 9 speaks to the fact in verse 17 that God said to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. You will say then to me, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Verse 20. But you, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the, pot, the potter no right over the clay? God blesses humanity. He makes all of creation to serve in a way his needs, to provide for everything in his life, but we must not mistake the difference. We are not God. God is the only maker of the heavens and the earth. God is the only one who is owed worship. And in part, he's owed worship because of everything he's done for us. Because he has blessed us so much, he deserves our worship not just in being our maker but also in his many blessings he's given to us. Humanity receives the blessings of a real place. Those blessings are given to a real man. 
And all these blessings are promised to us in Christ. You know, the whole framing of this is kind of a downer, isn't it? We're talking about the reality of the world the way it should be, but not the way it is. If we summed up the blessings that man had, it's the blessing of eternal life. God provided and didn't make man, he made him out of dust, but he made him dependent upon himself, prevented, uh, dependent upon him for his provision, dependent upon him for his life. And all of that was lost in the fall. And in Adam, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that the first man was from the earth, the man of dust, but the second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are also those who are of the dust. And as the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. God created Adam to be a living being, receiving so many earthly blessings, promised everlasting life in relationship with God himself. And in that Adam turned and failed. Because Adam, part of the blessing of the garden in verse 15, is that Adam was put into the garden to work and keep it. And Adam failed to keep it. But Christ didn't. Christ, he he achieved where Adam failed. Those words there, those tasks that are put on humanity, to work it and to keep it. To work it should be something that shows us the blessings of our jobs. That humanity was made to work. That idleness, being lazy, goes against our very nature and is against the good creation design of humanity. The principle carries over into the New Testament. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10 says, If a man will not work, neither shall he eat. But Adam wasn't just merely a gardener. That wasn't his sole task. In the garden, Adam was equipped... Also to be its priest. When you see these words work and to keep, every time they're paired together throughout the Old Testament, it refers to the work of a priest. How does a priest keep the sanctuary pure? He reads the law. He meditates on the law. He doesn't allow sin to enter in. He protects it. And when Adam fails in this task, God is going to kick him out of this sanctuary, out of this paradise, and put a guard in front of it to keep it holy. In fact, the Garden of Eden itself is patterned later in Exodus chapter uh, 
28 and seeing the design in Exodus chapter 33 through 40, we see that the tabernacle is patterned after all the designs found in Eden. Filled with figures of tree, filled with gold, and even the breastplate of the high priest had the stones that are mentioned in this text. Gold and onyx stones. This was to be a reminder of them when they worshipped of what they lost in Eden and a semblance of what they gained and what they were being promised in the tabernacle. The same thing is true on steroids when it comes to the temple. But where it's fulfilled is not in a place like a temple. Where is eternal life promised to the people of God? There's an interesting statement found in Luke 23. Do you remember the thief on the cross? He defends Jesus while he's being mocked. And the thief on the cross says, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And indeed, we are justly, for we are receiving the due of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus... Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. What makes the garden the garden? What made the tabernacle and the temple special? It was beautifully designed, sure. The thing that made those places special was that God's presence was there. That God promised that his spirit would fill it. That Adam got to have, yes, eternal life, but it was eternal life in God's presence, walking and talking with God. What Jesus told this man while he's on the cross is that today he would be with him in paradise. Imagine the images that would have flown through his mind, saying that today you'll be with me in Eden. Jesus told his followers constantly throughout his life. John chapter 5, verse 24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. When Jesus is talking to John, to the seven churches, in Revelation 2, verse 7, Jesus says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And he says further, that he who has an ear, let him hear. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Or even the picture that, my, or not Michael, Steve read for us from Revelation chapter 22. What is it filled with? It's a city filled with stones of jewels, of gold, of onyx. 
with a river flowing out and down out of it, a river of life, with trees of life, the leaves of the tree which are healing of the nations. What we have in Christ is not the promise, the blessings of going back to the good old days, of living as gardeners in God's garden. We're actually promised something better than that. We're promised the fulfillment of all these blessings. Humanity was not created to remain just gardeners. We were created to have life with God, eternal life with God. We were created to live in what Jesus is going to bring on earth. He's going to bring the city of God on earth. And we're going to have eternal life that's offered in him and him alone. See, the blessings that Adam, Adam had in a place... The blessings that he actually had as a real man were lost to him and were lost to all humanity. And if we are trying to work our way to heaven, let me just go ahead and spoil it for you. You won't be able to work hard enough. Because what does it take to be kicked out of God's presence? The presence of a holy God. One sin. Adam could not achieve the eternal rest that God had promised him. He couldn't keep it. But Christ did. He achieved where Adam failed. God in Christ, in Christ becoming a man... He does not excuse our sin, but he redeems us from our sin. He removes the guilt and he restores the original intent of humanity, which is to have eternal life in Christ. And this is a promise that's only offered in Christ. You're thinking, how on earth does this reality come to me? Sometimes when we read about this, is we read Romans 9 and we think, has God made me to be a vessel for wrath and not a vessel for honor? Not a vessel which God has made and crafted for honor, for heaven, to live in Eden? How does this work? Ezekiel shows us how it works. Ezekiel chapter 37 tells us Ezekiel comes in Ezekiel 37 he comes to a valley of dry dead bones and the prophet asked what could bring these bones back together and the Lord answered prophesy over these bones and say to them oh dry bones hear the word of the Lord Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I'll cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And the bones began moving. And in verse 10, we see that the sinews, the flesh, forms as God's word went forth. And they lived, and they stood on their feet, 
as an exceedingly great army. See, we see this breath of life come back into play. Because Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that when we've sinned, all have died. That we are dead in our sins and trespasses. No hope of eternal life. But when Christ's word goes out, when preaching happens of God's word, God's word is used by the Holy Spirit to make us alive. To start the first fruits of eternal life. And we find ourselves believing God's word, delighting in it, believing on Christ, and he redeems us. If you want to know if you're made for eternal life, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will save you. He will redeem you. He will make you go from a dead man to one who has eternal life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that as we sit under your word, we know and we come expecting the Lord to use that word to bring us life. Lord, we don't follow Adam. We don't look to Adam as our hope in life and death, but we look to the God-man, Jesus Christ who you've granted authority, all authority over heaven and earth. We look to him as the founder of our salvation. And Lord, we thank you that we don't have to look back with sadness over the good old days on what Adam lost in the garden, but we can look forward to joy and expectation towards the new city that was built by Christ himself. Lord, we're so thankful that the wages, while the wages of sin is death, that the free gift of God is an eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. If you'll stand with me.